Good morning. We are studying the book of Matthew this spring, if you're visiting with us or new here, showing the life and teaching of King Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, there isn't a more complete book of the life of Jesus than the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of show the four uh, perspectives on Jesus, the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus uh, in the New Testament. But Matthew's the most singularly complete perspective of Jesus. It goes from genealogy all the way to Great Commission. It covers more teaching. It covers more miracles. It covers more time than any other singular gospel account. So if you want to get to know who King Jesus of Nazareth is, if you're curious about him, if you haven't uh, experienced him in a long time, uh, or if you are a faithful follower and anything in between, this is a great book to encounter uh, the living Jesus. So that's what we're doing this, this spring together. We started the last few weeks, last three weeks of kind of intro. We've been looking at the origins of King Jesus. We looked at his genealogy, his family tree. Uh, he comes from the royal line of David, but then we also looked at, uh, he comes from a pretty broken family system. Join the club, Jesus. And so he, he, he is fit to not just be our king, but to be our elder brother. He gets it, uh, what it means to come from a crazy family, and you're welcome in his family. And then we looked at his birth story and the chaos of his birth story uh, for Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, and what that was like and how they were, they were invited into this storyline that they couldn't control, but the chaos of it uh, was part of this kingdom coming. And then last week, we looked at his baptism. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He's commissioned. He's installed. It's his coronation service that he is the king and this is his enthronement ceremony right before his ministry begins. That's where we've been. It's kind of an intro couple of weeks to the origins of King Jesus. What all takes place in Matthew chapter one through three, chapters one through three, that set up the public ministry of the king and his kingdom that's about to begin. So that's where we are. And now he begins his ministry. And the first thing that King Jesus does as his ministry begins, the first thing he does publicly is face his greatest enemy. Takes him on one-on-one. -on -one. So that's what we're gonna look at is the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter four. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter four, starting in verse one, we're gonna read one through 11 and then verse 17. Again, this is right after his baptism. He's baptized. If you were here last week, he's declared to be the beloved son of God. This is my son, the father says, with whom I am well pleased. And then he is commissioned and sent in to a life of ministry. And this is his first assignment. Matthew chapter four, verse one says this. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. That's Satan quoting scripture to Jesus to convince him even scripture would support you doing this really sinister and Jesus said to him verse 7 again it is written you shall not put your Lord your God to the test verse 8 the third temptation again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me then Jesus said to him be gone Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Skipping down to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're the Lord. Amen. So this first uh, assignment of Jesus is a pretty interesting one. First public ministry assignment. It's a well-known, it's been uh, you know, portrayed in, in movies. The temptation of Jesus. X is the first Greek letter of the name Christ. So that's an abbreviation for Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. Really interesting. Really interesting, interesting story that his first assignment is not to go preach the Sermon on the Mount. His first assignment is not to go call the Pharisees and the religious leaders out, which he will do plenty of. His first assignment is not to go perform some miracle and heal the sick. That's not the first assignment of King Jesus after his coronation and his baptism. His first assignment is to take his enemy, his number one, public enemy number one, uh, on face to face. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days to do this. And so we have to ask ourselves, not just uh, why is this the first assignment, why was this even an assignment? Like, you know, school kids are often like, why is the teacher assigning me this homework? This has nothing to do with real life or what we've been learning. I don't understand this. It can feel like this is out of place. Jesus is here to bring a kingdom. Jesus is here to heal the sick. Jesus is here to set the captives free. Jesus is here to give his life away. So why does he have to go into the wilderness to do this? And so what's been often taught about this, what you've probably heard about this, what you probably believe about this, which is not all wrong, just mostly wrong. This is, how, this is how this has been taught to us. Why this is in the Bible, I'm going to put it down here, is that it's meant to teach us about temptation. Like, give us the forensics of temptation. Teach us kind of how the enemy works, which is certainly helpful. Teach us his schemes, which is certainly helpful. But hey, Christian, hey, believer, you need to learn about temptation so that when you go face temptation, you can fight it like Jesus fought it and you can win it like Jesus won it. Now, that's in there, kind of. We'll get to that in a little bit. This is, this is not not in there to teach us how the enemy works. If you're in a battle, you want to know the schemes of the enemy for sure. That's just not the primary reason why this story is in scripture. It's actually something far deeper and far better. Because here's what we, we actually, let me, let me recap what just took place for you. Okay, this is what we just saw happen. Is that a straight line? Left on a dash. How's that looking? Everybody, we good? My kids had a stomach bug this week. Okay, so I'm about to throw up on this board. Okay, but here, here <laughs> kind of. Um, here, here's what just, what just took place. Um, Jesus is baptized and he's given this identity from the Father. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And immediately, all four gospel accounts would tell you, immediately after he's given this identity, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's hungry. He's in the wilderness. I'll abbreviate that. And here's what he's ultimately tempted to do with every temptation. This is, this is a high flyover. You could break down each one and we'll, we'll do a little bit of that in a little bit. Uh, but ultimately what Jesus is tempted to do at every temptation at all three that are recorded for us is he's tempted to betray his identity. This identity that he was just given, he's tempted to betray it. He's tempted to go against the identity that he was just given at his baptism. He comes up out of the water. The father speaks from the heavens. The heavens are ripped open. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And immediately he goes into 40 days. He's hungry in the wilderness. And hey, are you sure about that identity? That's what every temptation is going after. That's what Jesus just withstood for 40 days. Okay. Now, let me give you a little history of temptation. Let's back this train way up. That if you, if you want to understand it kind of a, a biblical theology of temptation, 
there are two main archetypal moments, stereotypical moments. If you want to understand what the Bible has to say about temptation in general, there's two main storylines from the Old Testament that will teach you about temptation, okay, and how it goes. The first is in the Garden of Eden, that's in Genesis 1 through 3, where we see Adam and Eve. The second is in the wilderness where the Israelites, Israelites, uh, they face temptation, and that's in the book of like Exodus and Numbers, okay? These are the two main archetypal Old Testament stories of the enemy coming to tempt and taunt and allure and entice God's people in, in the Bible. If you want to understand how the enemy and his taunts and his temptations work, this is it. The first one, Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 through 3, ultimately they are tempted to betray their identity. Here's what happens. Adam and Eve, you are God's image bearers. You are here to co-reign in the, in the cosmos with your heavenly father, the king. And he has made you in his image to be fruitful and multiply. Go therefore and take dominion over the world. Cultivate and keep this garden. Bring beauty and life and civilization and love out of every plant you plant and every animal you raise and every child you rear. Bring it up into the life and love of the king who has made you in his image. They were given that identity in Genesis 1 and 2. And guess what happens when they are tempted to, uh, by the serpent who comes in, he gets them to betray that identity. That's not really who you are. That's not really who God is. And when they are tempted to betray their identity, what do they do? That says fail for those who can't read in the back. They don't do so good. And you wouldn't have done any better, okay? <laughs> That's coming. But a little prequel, you wouldn't have done any better. They fail when they are tempted to betray their identity. That's, that's the first place in the Bible. The first temptation is, the, is, a, is a pretty bad one. Our forefathers, your first mom and dad didn't do so good. The second one in the wilderness, the people of Israel, they've just been set free from slavery in Egypt and they cross the Red Sea. They undergo, this is metaphorical, but it's also real. They undergo a baptism of water. They come through the Red Sea. And when they come out on the other side, they are given an identity. You are my people whom I love, who I heard your cries in Egypt and I destroyed Pharaoh and all of his gods to save you. You are my people and I'm your God and let's go to the promised land together. They're given that identity. For the first time in their history, Israel is called Israel in this storyline when, when they're leaving Egypt. They go into the wilderness for 40 years. They have a 40 in there too. They are hungry when they face temptation and they're facing all this. And guess what happens after their baptism, after their God-given identity, they are tempted over and over and over to betray their identity. And how does Israel do over and over and over and over again? Do you know who you are? Do you know why the Lord saved you? Because he loved you? Do you know what he's calling you to? Do you know the promised land he has set aside for you? What do they do over and over again? They worship golden calves. They betray their identity. So when Israel faces their main temptation, how do they fare? They fail. Okay, so your first mom and dad, Adam and Eve, and then the forefathers of God's people, Israel, the, the nation who is called to be God's set-apart people, when they face temptation in the wilderness, they fail. Okay, now go with me here. Parallel the archetypal stories of the Old Testament where we learn about temptation and the enemy and how he works and how he leads God's people astray. Parallel that with what we just read in Matthew chapter four. 
Jesus has a baptism, just like the Israelites had a baptism coming out of the Red Sea, and he's given an identity. And then he goes to the wilderness for 40 days, and he's hungry, and he's tempted to betray his identity. So here's what you begin to see. Jesus is facing in the same archetypal ways, in the same symbolic ways, the same temptations that your first parents faced and that God's people faced. And how does Jesus fare? He doesn't fail. He withstands the enemy and the enemy's taunts. He doesn't give in. He doesn't lose his mind. He actually withstands. And so here's what any Jewish reader of Matthew, any listener of the gospel accounts that make this parallel of a hungry person in the wilderness for 40 days who was tempted to betray who they were and who their God said they were, they would have said, oh my gosh, this is just like our forefathers in the wilderness. This is just like our first parents in the garden. And so they failed in their attempts to defeat the enemy and his taunts, but Jesus didn't, which is this giant billboard flashing light telling the reader, hey, Jesus is the new Adam and he's the new Israel. He is the new humanity where your first parents failed, he didn't fail. He came to do what they were unable to do. He came to withstand what they could not withstand. He came to put back together what they shattered. Jesus came to be the new Adam, the new humanity and the new Israel, the true son of God. Because Israel was called God's son of, the son of God in the wilderness. You are my son Israel whom I love like a father, but they failed. They betrayed their God-given identities and Jesus didn't. Jesus faces the same exact things that Adam and Eve and the Israelites faced and he doesn't fail because he's the new Adam and he's the new Israel. That's why this story is in scripture so that the reader and the listener would see, oh, we have a new Adam, the firstborn of a new humanity. We have a new Israel, the one who embodies all that Israel was supposed to be. He's here. The king is here and he's come to make things right. That's what this story is in scripture for, which goes against basically everything we love to believe about ourselves, especially when we come to scripture in the modern moment, it's really hard for us to read scripture and not say, how is this passage about me and my little story? That's not why the Bible was written. The Bible is not primarily about you and what you must be doing. It's got some of that in there. The Bible is primarily about God and what God has done for you and continues to do for you in Jesus. Every storyline of the Bible is about that, not you, which is hard for us, but that's why this story is in here. We don't read the temptation of Jesus and think, well, I wonder what this teaches me about temptation in general and how I can withstand it better. That's in there too. We'll get to that. But the primary reason that this story is in the Bible is to show you that Jesus is the new Adam and the new Israel. He came to do what humanity could never do. Make sense? And then, I didn't even let you answer. I hope it makes sense. Then after that, after it's about Jesus primarily and what he's accomplished for you, after it's about that, then it can be how we learn about temptation. To show us other parts of like real things and how the world works and what reality is. So let's look at this. Temptation. We're going to look at temptation kind of forensically for just a minute. I want you to understand how temptation works. And newsflash, Satan is not that creative. He doesn't do anything different than he has always been doing. 
He comes at this with the same tactics. He comes with the same schemes. He comes with the same deceits. He's not all that creative. By the way, precursor, I'm assuming you believe there is a Satan, okay? I know that like Kaiser Soze, the greatest trick that ever ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Newsflash, that's what Satan's done. We're not getting into that. Let's just go with me for a minute that the Bible says Satan's real. We're gonna believe it for a second, okay? Satan's real, this is how he works. Golly, that was fast, Ellie. I am throwing up everywhere. Here we go. Let's learn about Satan and how he works because he's always worked the same. The same way he worked on Adam and Eve, the same way he worked on the Israelites, the same way he worked on Jesus is the same way he, worked on, uh, he works on us. So let's forensically look at this for, this for a minute. Jesus comes up out of the water and he is given a God-given identity as a son or daughter. Because here's what we saw last week. The God-given identity that Jesus is given out of the water is given to him before he accomplishes anything. Jesus has a totally received identity as sonship that he did nothing to earn, deserve, or prove. He just is the son of God, and that's who God declares him to be before he accomplishes anything. And if you're in Christ, that's true for you too. You have a received identity as a son and a received identity as a daughter. It's a bedrock It can't be shaken if you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, so it can't be taken away. It's who you are because of what Christ has done. That's true for you. Jesus has given that after his baptism. He comes out of the water. He's given this bedrock identity as a son. So if that's a bedrock for an identity for who you are and who God wants you to know yourself to be, don't you think the enemy would maybe come after that part of you? to get you to believe that that's not true, to get you to believe that it can't be as solid as scripture says that it is. And here's what Satan does. Here's what Satan has always done. Here's what Satan continues to do is he's going after that identity and he does it with this atom bomb word that is all throughout the temptation of Christ's story, if. It's in verse three, it's in verse six, it's even in verse nine in an implied way. Every temptation, here's what Satan's coming to do. He's coming and he's saying to you, oh, you're the son of God. Cool, 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 Jesus. So if you are the son of God, we'll go with that for a minute. Don't you think your life should be going a little bit differently than it currently is? Like first temptation, hey, Jesus, you're hungry right now, right? You've been in the wilderness for 40 days. I bet you're starving, you haven't eaten. Well, you're hungry and you're the son of God. Do you think God wants his kids to be hungry? Well, if you really are the son of God, then I would think that as the son of God, you should be full and you should be satisfied. So you should probably, you should probably use this identity you have to turn this stone into bread because God would never want you to be hungry, right? And so Satan's using this and saying, well, if this is true, then let's talk about your reality. If you are a son, your reality should look different. And here's what happens at every single temptation with this big word, if. Satan comes to Jesus and is saying, if that identity is true, if God just declared you to be a son and that's true, then are you sure being a son or being a daughter is enough? Like, shouldn't it be going different? Like, shouldn't you not be facing the things that you're facing? Like, shouldn't you not have to walk through this hardship? Like, shouldn't you not have to be hungry? If you really, if you really are a son, we'll give you that. If you really are a daughter, like, we'll, we'll, we'll grant you that. But is being a son and a daughter really enough to hold you in this season? That's what Satan is going after. Satan is not inviting Jesus to doubt his sonship. Like, well, maybe I'm not a son of God. He's trying to get Jesus to redefine what being a son would mean. Well, if I am a son, this is what Satan wants him to believe, then my life should look different. 
If I am a son, then I should have access to these things. If I am a son, then my life should be marked by these other realities. And here are the realities, I'm running out of space. Here are the realities that Satan always plays with in a macro sense. If you're a son, here are the realities you should always have. You should have power, you should have glory, and you should have satisfaction. That's what the temptations are all about. If you are the son, shouldn't the son of God have power? Oh, if you, sh- if you, if you need power, let's, let's test that power and see if the angels will catch you if you jump off the temple. If you're the son of God, shouldn't you have satisfaction? Why are you lacking in anything? Why are you hungry? Do you think God wants his kids to be hungry? You should use that position as a son to satisfy your desires right now. Satan is enticing Jesus to consider his identity and then redefine how things in his life should be going if that identity is true. And if that identity isn't enough for you, Jesus, come follow me and get these things that you really want from me. So here's, what, here's what's at stake in every single temptation that, that Jesus faced and that we faced, every single one. Here's what's at stake. Is being a son or a daughter of God enough for you? And oh, by the way, you get to define what enough means. Is being a son or a daughter enough? And if it's not enough, then maybe you should go down a different path to get what would be enough for you. This is what Adam and Eve were told in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, this whole garden, this whole creation is yours. You're my image bearers. I want you to be fruitful and multiply and reign in this beautiful, perfect Eden with me. And then the servant comes along and says, I I don't know if that's enough for you. Because he asked you not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know, I I bet he's holding out on you. I bet just being his son or his daughter or his image bearer isn't enough. You should take matters into your own hands and you should go against whatever this God is saying because I'm not sure this God has your best interest at heart. Is being his son enough? Same thing in the wilderness. Hey God, you rescued us. You brought us through the Red Sea miracle and you gave us this identity of being your people and you called us your own and you named us for yourself. We are your saved people that you rescued from the mighty hand of Pharaoh. You took us, you took us away that we might have a promised land and now we're hungry. We don't need food in the wilderness. Why are God's kids that he just rescued, why are they having to depend on God every day for bread from heaven? What is this manna thing, God? If we're truly your kids and you truly did rescue us and you truly do delight in us, then why is our life hard right now? Do you know what the Israelites actually say in the wilderness? This is true. In, In the book of Exodus, they actually go to Moses and they say, take us back to Egypt. Like slavery was better than this. This identity of being rescued by God, not what we want. They go, at least in, at least in Egypt, we had steak. It wasn't always medium, but like at least we had steak. Like it's better than this daily bread thing that you want us to keep putting up with. If we are God's children, it doesn't seem like it's enough for us. So let's take it into our own hands to make it enough for us. Is this life with you, God, enough for us? Same with Jesus. Same exact storyline. If you are the son of God, why do you have any unmet longings, Jesus? Why do you have anything that isn't quite the way that you want it to be yet? Is this what God intends for his son? If you are the son, is this what God wants for his son? Same for us. If you're God's child, why is he making you wait and suffer in singleness right now? Like, doesn't God want you to be happy? Doesn't God want you to be content in this life, life to the full, and for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Like I thought, 
if I am God's child, why is, why is this going on the way that it's going on right now? If God's real, why did he let your dad die? If God's real, why, if you are his child, why would he let something happen to you that you would never let happen to one of your children? Maybe I am God's child and maybe God's not as good as I thought he was and maybe I don't wanna be his child anymore. My life should be going differently if I am a child of God. That's what Satan goes after. And the way that he goes after it is with this word right here, if. And on the other side of if is always promises. Well, if this is going this way, let me promise you what awaits you on the other side. If this is going this way, come follow me. And if you follow me, I'll, I'll, I can give you some stuff over here. Satan is constantly challenging the sufficiency of God and his promises for you. And he's constantly showing you where you feel like you're lacking. And guess what he does in the lack? He says, let's fill it and I'll make it enough. So you can try to make your life enough. You can try to answer this question of, is being a child enough? You can try to do that a thousand different ways. And there's a bunch of easy targets to figure out how people do that. Like maybe I should run back to my favorite vice or my favorite addiction. Maybe I should go look at porn again. Maybe I should go on a binge again. Maybe I should go get high again. If I can do, if, if my life is feeling the way that it's feeling right now, then, and I don't like that and I am a child of God, maybe I could feel differently if I ran to my favorite secret vice or sin. That's real. And addictions are a really easy place to hear Satan scream this. Is what you have currently enough or do you need something more? But it's not only in those places. It's not only in addiction. It's in what David calls like the secret sins in the Psalms, like the hidden sins. They're like quiet and you barely even realize that you're doing it. That's where Satan's asking this question too. It sounds something like this. God, if you're sufficient and my identity is as secure as you say it is, and I'm your child, why is my wife griping at me again? And why is my husband working late again or going on another business trip again? Does he not want to be around me? I know, I know. I'm your child, God. And if I'm your child, don't you want your children to have power? Don't you want children to be empowered in the spirit and have power? I know something. I will, I will assert my power and I will have my power because God wants me to feel like I have power. And I'm going to let my spouse have it next time I see them. I'm going to criticize them. I'm going to give them passive aggressive feedback. I'm going to make sure that they know that I'm really discontent with them. And then I'll make me feel like I have a little bit of power because just being a son or a daughter is not enough. So I have to go make myself feel like I have enough by getting it myself. Or maybe it sounds something like this. God, if you're real and my identity as your child is real, don't, don't you want me to be happy in this life? Don't you want me to have the life that I've always dreamed of? And so I don't really know where you're at in this, but I sure know this. When I look at other people's life and I look at their Instagram feeds and I hear them talk about the life that they have and the way that their kids are being raised and the vacations they go on and the house they get to buy, I know their life sounds a whole lot better than mine. And so maybe if I just scroll a little bit more, I'll get a really miserable but addictive dopamine hit of envy. And I'll just crave after this life that I don't have because my life doesn't feel like enough. And so I'll just, I'll be tempted to believe that being a child, a son or a daughter is not enough. And I'll commit a felony against the king. I'll commit treason against him by saying the life you've given me is not enough because you're not enough. And I'll wish that I had a different life than the one that I have. It happens everywhere. And every time we give into this question to get power, glory, or satisfaction, Outside of our God-given identity, here's what we do. We lose our minds, literally, like at the brain wiring level. 
in your prefrontal cortex, like you, you lose yourself and you go into fight or flight or freeze and survival mode and you've got to do something to not feel that way anymore because you've forgotten who you are. Every time you give into one of Satan's temptations, you forget who you are and you lose yourself and you lose your mind, literally. It's everywhere. You're always being tempted with an if from Satan and then promise something on the other side of that. And every time we give into that, we lose our minds. Like we literally get disintegrated, disintegrated. Like our, our brain wiring becomes disintegrated. We lose ourselves in it. We don't know who we are any more than we did before we committed this. And we're actually more confused by who, uh, the, of who we are. When I just committed this act of sin and treason, I, I ran after my favorite addiction again, or I had a fit of rage, or I chose to try to control my eating in this way and to, for my body image sake and whatever it is. And you're more confused. You actually don't know who you are better than you did before you committed the sin. It confuses us and we lose ourselves, we lose our minds and our, we become disintegrated. Here's another little feature of temptation that's maybe my, not my favorite, but maybe the most, maybe it's my least favorite. It's what I know all too well. It's what is maybe the most sinister about how Satan comes at God's people in this passage, but also in our lives. And, and it came out as I was studying this passage again this week, I've preached on this passage before and I've never realized this. I should be fired. But it's, it's this really subtle tem- part of Satan's temptation in the last temptation in, in this account of the three. Jesus was tempted more than three times in the wilderness. These are kind of the three archetypal, stereotypical ones. And this is maybe to me where Satan does his greatest work. It's so subtle. And it, and it jumped off the page at me studying this week. Verse eight and nine, look at this with me again. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, it's so easy to think if you've grown up in and around church, or even if you haven't, it's easy to kind of look at that on first read and go, wait, Satan tried to, tempt Jesus to become a Satan worshiper? Like that doesn't sound very appealing to Jesus, right? He wouldn't, why, why would that have been tempting for Jesus? That feels like an easy one, right? That feels like something that Jesus would have never given into to worship Satan. So why is that in there? Why is this temptation in there? Well, look again at what Satan shows Jesus. This is crazy. As if everything else in the story isn't crazy. This is crazy. No, this really is crazy. He takes him to this high mystical magic mountain somewhere, verse eight, and shows him all the kingdoms of their world and their glory. Somehow in some other you know, dimension, they go to some transcendental place where Jesus can see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Here's what Satan just shows Jesus. A world full of glory with no sin. In other words, Jesus is shown a picture of the ideal reality that he came to create. That's what we studied in the book of Revelation last fall. This is Jesus' whole mission, is a world without sin. It's why he came, to purge the world of sin and death, to finally defeat the one who had taken the world captive and set it free from its bondage of darkness. He came for this reason. This temptation is appealing to Jesus because it's what he longs to see. It's Jesus' greatest fantasy. 
I want to see a world with only glory and no sin. And somehow Satan shows him a world with all glory and no sin. Do you think it's appealing to Jesus to see that world? It's the apple of his eye. It's the whole reason he came in the first place. And then Satan says this, this is where it's so sinister. Hey, Jesus, um, I can give you this world, the world that you came to create. You can have it all. You can have what you long for. You can have what you want above all else. And guess what, Jesus? If you'll do it, you don't ever have to suffer for it. You can have everything you want and you won't suffer. You don't have to die for it, Jesus. All you have to do is worship me. That's way easier than dying and being forsaken by your father and defeating death. Like, you want this world, right? You want a world full of glory. You want this world. And if you're the son of God, which I know you are, and you came to create a world full of glory and no sin, you can have what you really want. You don't have to suffer for it. You can have it and you can have it now. You don't have to die for it. You can have it and you don't have to wait for it. You are the son of God. Why should you have to suffer, Jesus? Do you think God wants his kids to suffer? Don't you want this world full of glory and having no sin? Let me give you this world and you won't have to die for it. And this is where Satan is so sinister. This is where he goes for the soul jugular on all of us. He offers what you long for most and he offers it to you with no suffering. Every temptation is a temptation to get what you want without suffering for it. Every single one. You don't have to wait for it because usually waiting is suffering. So you can have it now. Hey, lose your lid on one of your kids and that rage, that'll give you a little hit of power and control. You can have it and you don't have to suffer. Make your kids suffer. It'll give you, it'll give you a little hit of what you want. You want control, right? You want to be the one in charge, right? So do that. Do it now and don't suffer. Don't suffer for the sake of love for them. Hey, you want intimacy, right? God made you for intimacy. You can have it with any sexual experience you want and it will cost you nothing. Like you don't have to go suffer for people that you love. Just go get what you want. Have what you want with no suffering. It's what he comes after all the time. It's what he's constantly offering. Get what you want and you don't have to wait and you don't have to suffer. And here's how Jesus defeats the enemy. Here's how Jesus doesn't fail when he's in the wilderness for 40 days and he's hungry and he was tempted to betray his identity. Jesus does not have to test the father's goodness to know that it's enough to be a son. He doesn't have to test the father's goodness to know it's enough to be a son. And so he stands on God's word. By the way, he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy all three times. Apparently it was his favorite book, that in the Psalms or something. Uh, he stands on God's word, the book of Deuteronomy, and here's what he knows. He knows and he trusts and he dares to believe that the God who sent him, the God who made him was enough for him. And it was worth suffering and waiting for. And he withstands it. He doesn't fail. He doesn't give in. And if you've ever resisted temptation, especially if you've wrestled addiction, you know that when you resist temptation, Satan may flee for a minute, but he's coming back with an army. Like it's harder every single time to resist in your addiction. It feels like it, at least at first, on a journey to sobriety. It feels like I'll never be able to withstand this. The assault of the army is too much. And so you know what it's like when you resist temptation, that the next round is more difficult and more difficult. Jesus does it. Like, and he never gave in, which means the assault that was coming at him was harder than anything you've ever faced. 
He stood on God's word and dared to believe that the God who sent him, who his father was, and that was enough. Which should drive home for us yet again, what we said earlier that like this story in Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus is not primarily just to teach you about temptation and how you can leave this place. And if you will battle temptation like Jesus battled, you'll never fail again. That's not why it's in the Bible. This passage is not just a forensic study of temptation. It's meant to show you not that you'll always defeat Satan when he comes at you next time, because I promise like probably by lunchtime, you'll fail again. Maybe like afternoon nap, but like today, it's not going to go like on some level, you will believe that he's not enough for you. You will believe that you can get what you want without having to suffer for it. You will believe that today and you will give into micro or macro. You will give into it today. And so what this passage is about is not equipping you to never, ever, ever fail again. I hope that there's fruits of that, surely. But that's not the point of the passage. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, makes this same point very clearly when he's talking about resisting temptation and running the good race and facing discipline and suffering and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he says. He's trying to make sure no one misses that the way that Jesus withstood temptation is unlike anything you've ever faced. Like it was way harder for him. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, in your struggle against sin, like I, I know it's hard and it is, In your struggle against sin, and he compares it to Jesus, he says, (laughs) oh wait, where is it in my notes? What does he say again? In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. Newsflash, your suffering and your temptation will never match his. Newsflash, it'll never even come close. You have not withstood temptation to the point of shedding your own blood to not give in to the temptation. What's he talking about? See, because Jesus did resist temptation in the wilderness, but that wasn't the last time, he was, last time he was tempted. Jesus actually did resist temptation to the point of shedding his own blood. This taunt, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, that same taunt, that same temptation, Jesus would hear it again later in his life. Do you know the next time Jesus will hear that taunt and that temptation? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, then why is this happening to you? He'll hear this taunt while he's hanging on a cross. If you're the son of God, why are you suffering like this? If you're the son of God, call down angel armies to to release you. You should not be suffering like this. And Jesus didn't fail there either. He withstood temptation to the point of shedding his own blood. He knew that the world he came to create full of glory and no sin would only come through his own suffering. He knew who he was and he knew what he came to do. That's what the temptation of Jesus story in the wilderness and on the cross is telling us that he didn't give in to the tempter's power so that when you and I do give in to the tempter's power, he's still enough for you. That's what the temptation of Christ story is in the Bible for. It's telling you that he withstood temptation to the point of shedding his own blood, not so that he could hold it over you. Like, well, I'm sorry you gave in to your little vice, but you know, I kind of, I bled for it, so... Like where, that's not what he's doing. 
He doesn't hold it over your head. He withstood temptation to the point of shedding his own blood so that he could get it into your heart. And here's what he wants to get into your heart. I am the new Adam and I am the new Israel, which means this, because I didn't fail, you will always belong to him. You will be his. He was the new Adam and he was the new Israel so that he could cling on to you and never let you go. He was perfect so that when you're not, it's okay. Even when you live as if he isn't enough, you will still be his. Listen to what Kurt Thompson, he's my favorite, well, one of my favorite living authors and theologians. He's a psychologist out of DC, psychologist and theologian. He's amazing. Um, I think he's coming to town this week on Thursday at Fellowship Bible. You should go. But here's what Kurt Thompson says in his first book, Anatomy of the Soul. He's talking about like brain wiring and like the anatomy of your body and how it works and how it carries your story with you and what's going on in you at like the physiological level in your human experience with the Lord. Here's, Here's what he says. He's talking about the emotional and mental state of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Man, I circle a lot of things, don't I? Someone, someone asked me after the nine, they're like, I'm trying to figure out what you don't circle. Like if, if you circle everything, then nothing matters. Um, just roll with it. Here's what Kurt Thompson says about the mental and emotional state of Jesus while he's hanging on the cross, while he's being tempted to betray his identity. It says, from the cross, he still speaks into the darkness of evil, confident that he is being heard by his father when he cries, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is what Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive my executioners. Forgive the ones who are killing me. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Here's what Kurt Thompson says about that line. As he's hanging, he says, Jesus is mindful and centered completely integrated at the level of his prefrontal cortex. Those for whom he seeks forgiveness, his executioners and his taunters, are disintegrated, disconnected from their emotional states, their memories, and their identities. They have had to debase themselves to do this. They've forgotten who they are. And yet, and yet, and yet, listen to what Kurt Thompson says, at the height of Jesus' suffering, the point when it would have been the, the, the most logical to give up on all of it because he's being abandoned by his father. He's being forsaken from his ages past identity. He's losing the face of his father, bearing the sin of the world. At that point, at the height of Jesus' suffering, when he would be most likely to lose his mind, Jesus remains clear. Mentalizing his executioners and extending to them what they most desperately needed, forgiveness and belonging. At the height of his suffering, at the point at which he would be most likely to lose his mind, to disintegrate, to abandon his identity, to betray it. Like that, that's what suffering does to us. It makes us go, well, if this is what it means to be a son, I don't wanna be a son anymore. <laughs> like, I, like I don't wanna suffer this way. Jesus would have had every right to do that at the height of his suffering. He would be most likely to lose his mind. Jesus' mind remains clear. Mentalizing his executioners and extending to them what they most desperately needed, forgiveness and belonging. Even when Jesus was suffering, he was thinking about you. Even when Jesus was suffering, he was thinking about his enemy. And so get this. 
proved by Jesus hanging on crossbeams. He didn't lose himself so that he could make sure he would never lose you. That's why this story is in the Bible. Not so that you could go never fall into temptation again. I hope that happens. But I hope it happens because you know that this identity is enough, not because you've been equipped with the tools. That's why we're told of the temptation of Jesus. He's the new Adam. He's the new Israel. He accomplished what you could never accomplish. And the king and the kingdom are here. And he will suffer to make you his. Let's pray. Jesus, we don't know who we are. And... Um, it's so easy to believe the temptation to, to, to lose ourselves, to lose our minds, to forget who you are. And so as we close in song and even confession, Lord, um, would you guide us not in focusing on how we're going to battle temptation when we leave here, but would you leave us here, um, let us leave here beholding you and what you've done. Would, would your work on our behalf, would you... Would your not losing yourself so that you could never lose us, would, would that be what guides us out of here, we pray? That our affections would be awakened, that our, our, our curiosity about you, Jesus, we, we would want to know you more. Who is this Jesus who even when you're suffering, you, you're thinking about us. Even when you're suffering, you don't lose your mind. We ask that you don't just make us like you, but would you cause us to love you more, Jesus? We ask all this in your matchless name. Amen.